came fourth at Olympics when I was 20. I was ranked sixth in the world and I was voted the most talented sports person of a generation by one of the major newspapers. And yet I saw myself as a failure. Welcome to season three of the Young Player Wellbeing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Antonio Capasso, and as always, I'm joined by fellow co-host, Brad Fullerton. Brad and I are practicing sports psychology consultants. On the podcast, we combine our knowledge and experience with each of our guests to help bring sports psychology and wellbeing concepts to life. We ask our guests, who are experts involved in the world of sport, the right questions to provide you with a deep dive into their specialised area of expertise. While this podcast is designed for young academy players and we make sure that each episode is relatable to them, if you are an athlete, coach, parent, fellow practitioner or simply someone interested in the world of sport, we encourage you to stick around and guarantee you'll take something away with you. This podcast is also brought to you by Care Visions and the Young Player Wellbeing Academy in association with the University of Stirling. Now, without further ado, let's get stuck into today's episode. Well, hello everyone and welcome back. We are now on season three of the Young Player Wellbeing podcast and what a fantastic season we've got in store for you. Of course, it wouldn't be right if I carried on without introducing my lovely co-host Brad. So Brad, how are you getting on, mate? Yes, I'm good, mate. Thank you. Uh, You're sounding very clear uh, for all the listeners that are obviously on Spotify and other uh, podcast places. Tony's bought himself a mic, so... We've really made it big time going into season three, so we'll see how this episode sounds and you might find that I copy them and bite his style a little bit and buy myself a mic, so we're levelling up. Yeah, yeah, we're trying to, trying to make sure we're improving in all dynamics. Uh, <laughs> speaking of speaking of improving, to launch the new season, we've got a really fantastic guest on to today's episode and I'm really looking forward to hearing more about his own journey, his story, and also, you know, what he thinks is really valuable when it comes to supporting athletes. Um, So today's guest, um, he's had his own successful career when it comes to coaching athletes, helping athletes achieve national records um, as well as medals. He he himself has also, in his own personal career, has gone on to achieve uh, many achievements, such as making the London 2012 Olympics, the Rio 2016 Olympics, and has also won medals in the European Championships and World Championships. So today's episode, we are joined by Jack Green. Jack, how are you getting on? Doing all right, thank you. Yeah, really pleased to be here. I know we've been talking about doing this for a while. Yeah, we're absolutely buzzing to get you on. Um, I think we've been speaking to Jack for about two months now. Uh, and unfortunately, last last season, we couldn't quite get our diary to match. Um, but I think we thought, what a better way to start off a new season and have such a strong guest come on. So yeah, thank you very much for joining us. So what we'll do, same theme as last season. Uh, we'll start off by just going into a little bit about your journey. So if you could just tell us a bit about your journey in sport growing up. What was your sport and how did you get into it? Yeah, so uh, I'm really fortunate to have been a professional athlete and it was my dream when I was a kid. So I went into track and field, 400 metre hurdles and the 4 by 400 metre relay. Those were my events as a professional, but that wasn't the case when I first started. I had no interest in sport, to be honest. I liked animals and dinosaurs, wanted to be a zookeeper, archaeologist. And it was actually my uh, my cousin, who was a month younger than me, who was incredibly uh, talented, skilled when it came to sport, particularly football. It was actually Chelsea Academy when we were kids. So that one for you, Tony, there. But um, I then found out about my 
kind of physical abilities at primary school I think like a lot of us do find out we're good at something I tried out for the district sports team ran down the grass track 60 meters beat everyone by a country mile and thought oh quite fast and I quite like being good at something I quite like being told I'm good at something and winning and from that day onwards I started writing stories about winning the Olympics and that was my dream but I wanted to be a 100 meter runner that was never going to happen I don't have that speed I'm fast uh, but I'm not 100 meter fast that's a different level uh, so I was doing 800 cross country because I'm tall um, and, and high jump as well and yeah it wasn't until I was 14 I tried the 400 meters and then at 15 I did my first ever 400 hurdles and broke the British record for my age and was like brilliant this is the one I'm I'm gonna do now uh, and and then kind of carried on my my journey from there and, and became a professional for for 10 years. Wow, amazing. Um, I wish my first time doing a sport was when I broke a British record. I think, you know, that really definitely solidifies into someone that they're definitely in, in the right sport and the right avenue. So in incredible story there. Just interestingly, I think because you spoke really nicely about how you sort of moved up the ranks and found your sport. It'd be great if you could let us know what, what your experiences were with well-being and like psychology sport when you were growing up as well, going through these different transitions. Yeah, it's a great question. So obviously, I'm, I'm 32 now. So um, I think mental health well-being in particular in sport in the last 10 years or so has really, really changed. I went public with my own mental health struggles that I know we'll, we'll talk about, but I went public 11 years ago. And at the time I went public, it was a very difficult time to do it within a sporting environment. So when I was growing up, there wasn't any kind of support or, or even conversations around this and that was a lot of my struggles as a young athlete was I didn't believe mental health existed I didn't even I thought it was an excuse that other people would have people who weren't successful or so on and it was kind of seen as a very fixed not fixed mindset but fixed ability that you're either good in competition good in training mentally or you're not like you're either up to the challenge or you're not I think that still is present quite highly within sports in, in terms of some of the environments that you see created by certain coaches that believe that way but yeah it was never seen as something you could improve upon it was just you're right you've either got it mentally or you haven't and we also didn't look at what happens outside of the sport um, and that was never looked at any in any detail with me it was just Jack is fantastic for the two hours he's here and then off he goes and and not really valuing the human being so starting to touch on a lot of the, the things I, I value as a coach and, and my philosophies and my passions but yeah when it comes to me as a young athlete there was very little support and then when I did get support from sports psychologists, I was actually at a point where I needed clinical um, support and psychologists didn't cut it at the time in, in regards to that, not because it's their fault, it's just they're not qualified to to deal with uh, the real clinical diagnosis that, that I, I required at that point and the support. And that's when I was, yeah, started working with psychiatrists beyond that. But that's a little journey of, of my mental health, mental well-being, mental conditioning support uh, along the way. Could I just ask Jack, like when you were growing up and competing, were you even aware of sports psychology sort of well-being from that age range of like 12 to maybe 18? No, not at all. Not at all. And I really struck, you know, I can look in hindsight now understanding symptoms and understanding myself and learning about, about myself and mental health that I really struggled particularly with anxiety as a kid, perfectionism, fear of failure. Um, I hated competing because I put so much into it but because I was successful it always kind of papered over the cracks so even though mm. I 
hated going into competition. I get so nervous and so anxious and I'd throw up before races. I wouldn't want to be there. I'd then struggle anyway in the weeks of the expectation and the pressure because I'd then go and win the race. It was kind of like, oh yeah, we can brush that under the carpet because obviously Jack's fine. And that's where I think we've got a really interesting piece here where we, we can look at the connection between wellbeing and performance but also how you can actually be mentally unwell or struggling and still perform. But the difference is you're not going to perform sustainably and you're not going to continue to perform, which was a big part of my career of great success very quickly, but not sustainable because of the way I was going at it. And me as a coach, as a mentor, um, as a workplace well-being kind of advisor, I'm very big on how do we create better ways to win or the right way to win, which is sustainable, which means that you win in the long term. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. That idea of sustainability is so key. Um, and you're right there, like it, just because it's working right here and now or you're managing to function at a high level right here and now does not mean that that's going to be the case in the long term. And I think, again, like a strength of what we're trying to do with with young people is try and make them aware of the fact that just because you're not struggling right here, right now, doesn't mean that you don't still need the skills for in the future. So it's almost trying to be proactive as well so that actually when it does come to a period in their life, hopefully it never does, but when it does come to a period in their life when they actually need to start pulling on the healthy coping mechanisms and using sort of social support networks, et cetera, they, they actually have that ability and skill readily available. Because um, again, like what you're speaking about a little bit earlier on now in the in the recording, but really sort of screamed out to me was that like you've either got it or you haven't got it when it comes to like mental resilience or the more traditional terms that coaches like to use of mental toughness. And it's like, actually, no, and I think for me, it's like so frustrating because I know now through my, you know, um, through my studies and through my my um, work that you can develop mental skills, mental resilience and uh, I hate using the word, but also a, a concept of mental toughness. Um, so I think that is something that really needs to start changing. And, you know, people need to start accepting the idea that mental health is fluid it's not always if you mention someone has mental health it doesn't have to be in a negative way it can be really positive as well so yeah it's really great that you picked up on that so you moved from junior to pro at 18 uh, and then also experienced your first world championships at just 19 and just that there you, you've got moving to, moving to pro at 18 that's one as we say transition and then also going to a world championships is another massive you know experience to sort of overcome and manage so how did you manage these transitions? It's a great question because it's such a big barrier and it's one I get asked about a lot because I did it pretty seamlessly and what well, it was perceived to be uh, seamless. And yeah, I went, I signed a contract with Nike when I was 18, um, but I was just turning 19. So actually the, the time difference, it was immediate that I made my first senior championships and I went from 100 and think it was 105th in the world to 16th in one season I went to a first world championships I became the only teenager ever to win the European under 23s and I went from training twice a week to training six days a week in a group with the at that time the the current European and Commonwealth champion who then won the world championships that first one world championships that's my training partner a whole group was elite athletes and there's many reasons why I I got there re reasonably seamlessly. One, it was I had a coach who was incredibly experienced and worked with some of the best athletes ever lived. So, right, that's the expectation. My training partner was the number one athlete in the world. 
So I knew what the best in the world was. That helped. Our whole group was elite where I was the kid coming in that I had to step up and prove myself. So that really brings you in. But you also realize everyone's a human being because your training partner, who is the best, is just a normal guy. And because you're training with them, you see that, right? But I always believed that anyway. So I had this, and at the, at the point that I was young, I, it was more arrogance rather than awareness that I just thought, I thought I was better than everyone else. And I knew un, I understood that everyone was just a human being. So I didn't have it. No one was on a pedestal. So the people I was watching a year before on TV going, wow, aren't they great? I just thought I could be better than them. But I also knew that they were just human. And I knew that they they had to be beaten at some point someone's got to beat them so why can't it be me and that's kind of how I went at it so I've always seen and when I've mentored young athletes and worked with young athletes there's always just been this barrier of you hear a lot how that big step it's a big step up it's really difficult oh and all these people are on their pedestal that they've created and they're champions and they're the people you had on your posters and so on whereas I never had them on posters I just saw them as the next people to beat so they were always a target for me. They were never more than that. And I think that really helped because I was going into those environments, standing on a start line going, cool, I meant to be here. I feel like I already belong, not only because of my training environment, but because I believe that I belong there. Whereas most young athletes I work with don't believe they should be there just yet. And you either do well in that case through kind of naivety and like just a lack of awareness that you're just like, oh, I'm just really grateful to be here or you're really underperform because you don't believe you are meant to be there so that was a huge piece for me I always thought I was going to be the best in the world and truly believed it so I just made it happen earlier I didn't need that transition in realizing what the elite or the senior level was like to then adjust to it and get in I just knew I was meant to be there so I was going to make it happen yeah that's so interesting I think it's definitely something that you see a lot and you're right and a lot of youth athletes they put professional athletes on this pedestal and feel like they're almost some whole different entity uh, and they're not on the same level when it's just not true um, and sometimes I do wonder if if coaches can sometimes play into that like you say they, you know coaches make the remarks oh it's going to be a big step you've got to make sure you race this etc and I think sometimes paying attention to our language we use when it comes to going from amateur or youth to professional is so crucial because it can really give people that idea of oh maybe I'm I'm not good enough you know these people they're doing something really special that I'm not and I think by just re being wary of the language we use as as support staff as, as coaches when trying to encourage the development of players can be so important I think it's something that needs to be paid more attention to perhaps um, so I just wanted to touch on that and again that that idea of self-belief was really interesting too. That idea that you you think, why can't it be we? Why can't it be me? Why not me? Um, it's something that I've actually been wondering about now. I don't want anyone recording this podcast and being like, oh, Antonio's just said this statement. But I, I've always wondered if that's been the the issue in, in men's tennis where you've had like three really dominant professionals in Nadal, Djokovic and Federer. And then people have really struggled not now but people have struggled traditionally to try and knock them off that pedestal and I do wonder just because of some of the interviews I hear they almost speak about these athletes as if they're on a whole different level and they can't ever match that so I think it's just an interesting debate and something I've been thinking about. Yeah that's really interesting because um, slight detail I was going to mention about language as well but also when you do have superstars in the sport 
it then becomes the most competitive like generation of that time say 400 meter hurdles which i did um carsten warholm came in and started running world record times that are completely disgusting that people wouldn't have even dreamt of right <laughs> it's genuinely like I, I know the guy i've trained with him he is phenomenal i i'm probably the best trainer i've ever met and he makes me look average um he's just something else but since he came along and did that you then have four or five others that have done that and it's a belief piece right because mm -hmm. before he ran 45.9 you could win an olympics in 47.9 guaranteed and people were just like oh well right that's what you have to run it's not possible to break the world record of 46.8 that had only ever been done obviously the once and no one had got anywhere near it he then did it and now you've got four or five people that have run faster than that so it's also opening the door, but you will also yeah. have that element of what you speak of. There will be people that either rise to that and say, well, he's done it so I can do it. Or they will then go, oh, wow, aren't they great and amazing? They're so much better than me. That's not even possible. So that's a mindset piece. And then when you talk about language, Tony, uh, it works both internally, externally, doesn't it? So self-talk yeah. is, you know, that's the game the two of you particularly work in. It's the thing I love most, talking around mindset and talking about how we, we talk to ourselves. But I was having a catch up with the head of mental conditioning um, for the Tampa, Tampa Bay Rays yesterday. And he was saying when they, they changed their kind of name of, of mental conditioning to kind of process, process and performance they get so much more interaction from the coaches and the players and the day before I spoke with uh, one of the top learning and development people top legal firm he was saying that they changed learning and development to be performance and talent development and they get so much more interaction and then the other example I'll give you is when I was working with the UK government on mental health reform and elite sport we had the Leicester City football uh, psychologist with us when Leicester City had just won the league and he was saying when they took psychologist off his door, they got like a, I, I don't know, I can't remember the exact percentage, but a ridiculous amount more players going through the door to talk to him than when he had psychologist on the door. So language is so, so powerful. And you think if it has that impact externally, what impact does it have on us internally, particularly if we're on a start line or in the tunnel before a game? Yeah, yeah, no, that's amazing conversation. I just wanted to chip in with a little bit like we speak about sort of almost like idols you were talking about before and role models and you do encourage young people to have these role models within their sport but I suppose it's about the way that they look at that person like are they intimidated by that like I'm never going to be this because young people compare themselves to other people so much or do they actually want to strive towards what that person is but then overcome that as well and that's kind of sounds like what what you did, Jack. So that's really interesting because I'm thinking about young athletes that I work with. They're so scared and nervous because they're comparing themselves to other people who are their age or of their ability. But maybe if we're looking towards role models a little bit more and saying, well, I'm going to strive to do that and I'm going to strive to overcome what this person's done, then you, you've got no concern for the you don't care about what the other people next to you are doing because you're so driven by your own sort of path and your own journey so yeah that's just really interesting for for perspective i would i would add to that and, and this links into language as well start start talking to, to athletes young athletes in particular about when you're saying idols role models it's all about learning from them what do they do well that you can apply 
what can you see from them that you enjoy, which you like, that you would like to emulate and then achievement. And it's all this whole piece of let's make it learning rather than kind of glorifying or praising or worshiping. Like I think idols, role models can be seen as mm -hmm. it's actually, well, what can we learn from these people? Because at the same time that you learn what you want to do, even your the best athletes in the world, you'll learn what you what they might do wrong or what you wouldn't want to do which then makes them far more human as well because even the best athlete in the world will do things that technically might not be what you think would be or wouldn't apply to you or they just make bad decisions because that's sport right make mistakes and it being human that's part of it so yeah if we change it into a learning opportunity I think that really helps yeah I think that's brilliant I think as well some people can get lost in the concept of oh this person is my role model needs to be exactly like them but actually just like you said take the strengths and maybe leave the more the weaker parts or the bits that you that aren't so positive in that athletes I think again sometimes people are like oh but but they don't do this very well and it's like yeah but that's that's fine you don't need to mimic every single part of it so you're right it's it's picking apart the pieces that you want and always making your own making your own player out of all these different role models you can have you don't just have to have one you know so I think that's a really brilliant piece of advice there so moving on, you've done the world championships. Um, you're, you're training with you know, some of the, the best in the world, if not the best in the world. Um, and you're starting to move towards London 2012. Now, whenever people think about, especially in Britain, when people think about London 2012 and the Olympics, it's usually on fond memories and positive reflections. And it was a great year for British sport. Um, however, you went through a truly inspiring journey around this time so how did you manage to get yourself back into a healthy headspace and if you don't mind could you share with us what you went through during that time period yeah so first thing I'm, I'm a sports fan right I love all sports um so London was was just great as a fan anyway let alone as an athlete and when I was 14 years old I sky for the day off school pretended I was ill so I could find out whether we got the games um <laughs> against Paris at the time wasn't it and my mum only found that out when I was doing a keynote and she came along to it and was like hold on I thought you were actually ill so, oh no just a great actor um but yeah we got those Olympics I was I was 16th in the world the year before I got from as I said 105th to 16th and I knew what world number one was because I was training with them and I thought you know what I've gone from 105th to 16th why can't I go from 16th to first and I just saw it as like destiny I'm going to be youngest ever winner of the Olympics this is just everything I've aimed for I just believed in myself I know what number one is and so I've got that direct comparison every single day that I can beat and if I know I, I know if I'm ahead of my training partner I'm going to be the best in the world but I put so much pressure on myself to kind of achieve my dream that I started becoming really inconsistent so I'd have both emotionally and and performance so I'd have good days and bad days I'd have a great race I'd then not finish a race or I'd mess it up and it was because I was trying to live at an intensity that wasn't sustainable so I said I have to be Olympic champion quality in everything I do every single second of every day because that's what I'm committed to doing and I'm intense I'm obsessive it's a bit of a strength right I'm all or nothing which when managed is great when it's not managed is is dangerous and and I just 
kept burning out because I was putting so much in and I was just destroying myself and then wondering why I was underperforming because I wasn't giving myself any recovery. But I went into those Olympic Games, as I said, I was up and down, but in the last race before the Olympic Games, I ran a personal best that put me sixth in the world. I beat the reigning Olympic champion and I thought, brilliant, I'm going to be Olympic champion in a few weeks' time because it's all just coming together, yellow brick road, fantasy, fairy tale, Disney, whatever. I went to those Olympics. I qualified through my heat, no problem, 80,000 people in a, in a stadium. And then we had the semi-final the next day. Now, you warm up in track and field for about an hour to an hour and a half before a race. And the last place on earth I wanted to be was those Olympic Games. But I've been writing about this moment since I was seven. And then I was finally here. And the last place I wanted to be was those Olympics. And it was all because I was so full of fear of what if I don't perform? What if I don't achieve my dream? Um, all these things that might go wrong that, you know, I've made all these, these choices in my life. I don't say sacrifices because they were choices, but I made all these choices in my life about this moment and now it's time to pay up. And I was so full of fear of not performing that I didn't want to be there. And in my semi-final, I have very little memories of those Olympics because I was so full of fear that I genuinely can't recall much of it other than that feeling. But I got to the third hurdle in the race, which isn't very far around when there's 10 hurdles. I wasn't focused. I didn't have clarity because of that fear piece that I got my stride pattern wrong. I hit the hurdle and I fell. So in my first Olympics, I, I was 20 years old. I was ranked sixth in the world. I thought it was going to be the next big thing. And I hit the hurdle in front of 8,000 people and I fell. And then millions watching at home, plenty of abuse on social media and all that jazz. And that was my first Olympic experience. And what I really struggled with wasn't the fact that I fell because that's part of hurdles and it's part of life. Like we always talk about in hurdles, until you've hit a hurdle or you, you fall in a race, you're not a hurdler. Like it's part of the the race, part of the the whole badge of honour. I'm a hurdler and look at my knees kind of thing. They're all cut up. But um, so it wasn't that that I struggled with. What I struggled with was the fact that the time I ran two weeks before would have made me the youngest Olympic finalist in history. So it would have made the Olympic final. But more than that was that I never gave myself the opportunity to see how good I could be because I got in my own head because physically I was ready to perform. But mentally, I was not prepared for that kind of pressure or environment. And I stopped myself doing what I do best, which is just run fast. And that's really tough to take. Because it was all on me. It was all my fault as to why I didn't perform. No one else's fault at that point. That's on me. And it's all because I worried about the things that didn't matter or that I couldn't control. And I got so caught up in the noise that I forgot to do me. And that was quite hard to take. A few days later, we had the relay. I was so full of like anger at this point. I was so angry that I actually ran really well. Anger is a fantastic um, kind of fuel and motivation, but it's just not one we can keep hold of for a long time because it'll end up destroying you. But I used it really positively. I ran a time that was the fastest relay split of, in the world that year. Um, and we qualified in bronze position for the final. Thought, brilliant, I'm going to be an Olympic bronze medalist or at least an Olympic medalist of some kind. And the next day we came fourth and we missed a medal by 0.13 of a second. And it just felt unfair. I just thought because I was on this, this pretty seamless path, I was the yellow brick road, I was going to achieve these things that I thought life was meant to be a bit fairer to me. And I really struggled with the fact that it all kind of came crashing down. 
even though actually I came fourth at Olympics when I was 20, I was ranked sixth in the world and I was voted the most talented sports person of a generation by one of the major newspapers. And yet I saw myself as a failure. And that's really sad because people peak in my event between the ages of 28 and 32. I'm 32 now. Right? And that's a long time ago. And yet I saw myself as a complete failure. Um, so yeah, that's the that's the Olympic experience, which should have been one that, that was hugely positive, no matter the result, just because I got there. Two years before I was studying a VTech at college and yeah, nowhere near even the top hundred in the world. And now I'm going there and I'm, I'm, I'm someone at those games. I'm not just an extra or something, which still shouldn't count as a thing. Getting to the Olympics is an amazing achievement regardless. But yeah, so that was my first experience. And then, um, yeah, then it was that's an interesting story off the back of that, that I'm sure we will cover. Yeah. I mean, First of all, what what an amazing story and what incredible insight we've all just been able to gain from this. Um, I think it's so interesting just to hear how you speak about it and your perception of it at the time and then reflecting back at it and seeing actually really what, what the reality was and how how amazing that experience was and, and is, but how you are unable to see it at that time. I think it's, it's so interesting. And I think there's, you know, the, the thing that you said about almost playing the what if game before doing the the hurdles so that's sort of what i've started calling it now it's like the what that what if game where we start spiraling we start thinking about all the what's you know what are these bad things that are going to happen or and and before you know it you've completely lost that focus that you that you spoke about you know and, and then and then you made the mistake i think you know and i think that's why again it's it's so important that athletes are, are aware that these what if games that we all play in our heads it's what everyone does you're not the only one that does it and just because some athletes naturally over time have have been able to deal with that and they've they've got it whereas other people haven't actually got it doesn't mean that we can't then teach that and learn how to manage that so and, and again I think it's so interesting that you were you know at the Olympics surrounded by the best of the best and and there was no one there who who'd given you that education or given you the opportunity to get some of that education around that so I think it's really interesting Brad what were your thoughts sir? yeah well just an amazing insight really and I think for perspective it's useful to know that even athletes at the level that you were at Jack still experience mental blocks or challenges so we're not expecting young players that we work with to be able to to deal with these what-if scenarios and the in the best way possible but what we could do is maybe help them to challenge them a little bit and maybe work around some potential solutions to that but it's just interesting to hear that even at the level you were at you're not completely able to overcome those and that's fine because I don't think it's all it's not always possible or I don't think it is possible to control the way that you're thinking or the way that you're feeling especially in a moment like that so maybe realization that that is okay uh, could be useful but what we can control is the sort of way that we we behave and the way that we react to it but in that situation Jack it sounds like I can't I can't even imagine but it was just all extremely overwhelming and, and sometimes we're not able to to act off the back of that because it can be debilitating for us it can make us feel small and and, and make us perform under our level so yeah, just a really, really interesting um, insight. And I love the stuff that you touched on about, like, 
everything having to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, so I, I work with, like, so that can work for you, but I can also work against you, I think. So I work with some athletes that if they have a poor training session on, like, the Thursday night, if, say, that's the final training session before their tournament at the weekend, it will be a complete meltdown because the last ball that I hit on a Thursday night has to be the most perfect thing because that means when I start on Saturday, then I'm starting off on a foot that's completely perfect. Do you know what I mean? But then what happens if that last ball's not, you know, the perfect ball? And then you're going into that weekend in, in a in a sort of negative headspace. So it just got me thinking about sort of the positives and negatives of perfectionist traits, I suppose, as well. I, I think something I want to, to add, which is appropriate for this conversation, the people you, you work with and the listeners, we talked about that seamless transition from being junior to senior. That was also my downfall at the Olympics, was that mm. I did it so quickly because there was a few reasons. I hadn't, I didn't have any emotional intelligence or maturity at that point. So I was still very young and naive. I was still a kid. I hadn't failed enough to be able to learn how to overcome that. And I also, because I did it so quickly, I thought everything would be quick. So I didn't understand that actually this first Olympics is part of my journey. Like if it goes well, fantastic. But this is actually part of my journey to learn so that at the next Olympics and the one after that, I'm in that position where I'm ready to take my opportunities. Whereas I just saw it as like, well, I've got here. It's my destiny. I'm meant to be the best in the world. So this has to happen now. There's no learning allowed because you're ready. And I wasn't ready, but that's not how I viewed it. So instead of seeing all these opportunities as learning opportunities, growth opportunities, so that I am in the best position and as prepared as I can be for when the right opportunity comes, right? So, yeah, it was a real shame because I should have kicked on from those Olympics, but I didn't. And it was because of my mindset. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. There's a little bit of almost reframe that situation would have been so healthy for you you know looking at it in a different perspective of it's just because everything's happened so quickly for you here and, and now and everything's been really snappy doesn't mean that that's you know going to be how it is for a long term and that was one of the things I wanted to ask you was the fact that you know you spoke about you being along this yellow brick road and then you'd finally probably hit your first major pothole on that journey and did anyone at that point in time try and have a conversation with you around the the concept of you know you're 20 you're not even meant to be peaking at this this stage yet you know this is an opportunity for you to understand setbacks and understand what to expect and experience leading up to the next olympics or even possibly the olympics after that no it was uh you go to your biggest your live stream you go to the biggest competition you can go to and then the day after it finishes you go home and no one cares anymore and it was just like cool you've got four weeks off and then you're back in for training for next year and that's just that was it um so yeah it's not particularly the most wasn't the most supportive environment whereas i think whether you do really well or really poorly in that situation there should be some kind of support it's a bit like your driving test right there's a reason they don't let you drive home from your test whether you pass it or not and it's because of the emotions that are there, like the most accidents that happened before they made that decision from driving lessons was post either passing or not passing your test. Yet we send kids. That's what I was. I was 20 years old. I was a kid. 
um, sending a kid to the biggest thing you can possibly do that only what 0.0001% of the population achieves and then underperforms in my eyes and huge disappointment and anger and very upset and then it's just like all right see you later it's almost like thank, thanks for your service bye um yes yeah, it's shocking really when you look at it in hindsight and i don't think genuinely so this isn't me going oh anyone was at fault i don't think people were at fault i don't think there was any there's no conscious or intent to not support I think that's just a stage we were at within society, within sport, within life, that that just wasn't overly considered. And I think that would be a very different story now, or I'd hope it would be at least. Yeah. And just as we start, because we've started broaching that topic now, so as we start sort of speaking about that period of time off the back of London 2012, and you speak about that four weeks before the next season, I guess, started and kicked off again, and you're on to that next, you, you know, you're training for the next event and competition coming up. Was it that those four weeks where you started to really notice the de- deterioration in your mental health? Yeah, and going into to training again. So um, problem is my identity was wrapped up in being Jack the athlete. And that's all the conversations were. That's all I felt. And my identity was so attached and my self-worth was so attached to to sport that when I ran fast I was a good person when I ran slow I was a bad person right and at that point I was a bad person so I didn't particularly like myself I was I was ashamed I was embarrassed and remember like that's the only time I could go out and be social really that four weeks so you go kind of go home to where you you grow up and you go out with your mates and things and I remember going out and and you always get asked oh what do you do and oh yeah I'm, I'm an athlete and the first question you get when you say you're an athlete is did you go to the Olympics so I was like, oh, yeah, I did, actually, especially because it was London. It was like, oh, did you go to the Olympics? And then the next question is, did you medal? It's always the next one. Um, it's never just like, oh, brilliant, you went to the Olympics. It's like, did you medal? It's like, no, I came fourth. And I remember someone then patted me on the shoulder and was like, ah, oh, that's a shame. Uh, better luck next time, as if it was like sports day. And it was like, or, or I was known as, when it was like, oh, what's your name? Oh, Jack Green. Oh, aren't you the guy that fell in the hurdles? Right. So that was my identity at that point. I was either the person who didn't medal or the person who fell in the hurdles. And I wasn't emotionally intelligent enough to to understand my value beyond the track, that that just made me a failure. And then I, as I said, I definitely struggled with mental health when I was younger, but success papered over the cracks and it wasn't really a thing. Um, And the Olympics was my trigger. So it was my bigger trigger of I then failed to achieve what I believe I should achieve on a very grand public scale that then I couldn't handle those emotions and those feelings and and everything that happened that yeah I started to struggle and that's where the mental health journey began. I suppose one reflection for me is it's the the downside to the all or nothing mentality is that what happens when it doesn't work out and then we become as you said, wrapped up. You're so wrapped up in that identity as Jack the athlete that the other side of you hasn't hasn't been taken care of. And of course, I understand that you have to be extremely full on. I can only imagine how intense you have to be with training and how disciplined you need to be to get to the Olympics. But it's like, okay, well, what happens if it doesn't work out? Um, I think it's just kind of interesting reflection I had. But Yeah, for sure. It's great when it's great. 
it's very bad when it's bad and the reality is day to day you're going to have elements of all of that and you're probably within sport going to have more bad days than you will good so we can't live like that because yeah we talked about sustainable earlier it's not a sustainable you've got to be particularly i wouldn't even say strong but just a bit strange to be able to to endure <laughs> that over a very very long career right yeah it's so interesting where you said like you became the, the hurdler that fell almost was like what you became for that next you know few weeks when it was in everyone's mind it's so interesting because someone would have made that remark and then completely forgotten that they'd made that statement and just moved on with the day but to the person you've made that statement to like that sits with them for you know for a long time and even life sometimes if it you know and it's just so interesting because that is like people forget they make that the odd remark and then they move on and it's I think being really wary especially when you're speaking to to athletes or performers that are constantly in the spotlight that one little remark that you've made in literally like a three second period of time you've then then gone on with the rest of your day and forgotten about it whereas that's like that's sitting with the athlete for a long period of time until probably the next competition where they'll next get into the public eye and they'll suddenly be known for something else I think I'd okay, really... love to touch on that and, and give you an example of when it was meant to be positive but especially with an individual like myself how it ended up coming out negative and also we know how important language is I've got a five-month-old daughter and it's at the point where it's like language even at this point really shapes personality behavior and things and it's like oh wow I have to be that conscious so why wouldn't that be with our athletes now I had a coach and she's one of the best coaches I've, I've ever seen yet she's a local coach and so on and she had this one thing with that she she taught me that that's ended up being a negative it was a positive and a negative but it just shows the impact that you can have and beyond the sport and it used to be when you finish a, a training session and all you want to do is fall on the floor, right? Or you want to throw up or you're, you're just absolutely knackered. She used to say to me, you walk off this track with your head held high, standing nice and tall. Don't let anyone see you're even breathing heavy. And if you want to go and struggle, go do it out of sight because then people won't know that you're struggling. They think you've got more, you've got a, that kind of mental advantage. And it does work, but the problem is I applied it to my whole life so then I was no longer in, in my day to day, I couldn't show weakness, I couldn't be vulnerable, I couldn't show emotion, because I it was always seen as like a negative, because it, that's how it was for my sport. And because my identity was wrapped into that, that's just how I was as a person, I was always on. And the thing is, it even worked at like, I did that my whole career, my nickname was Green Machine, and the other nickname was Two Hearts, Four Lungs, because people are like, how does he just keep going? And it looks like it's easy. And he comes off the track like it's nothing. But inside, I was dying. Like, I was working so hard to not show that. Amazing in a sporting context, in the, the sporting environment I was in where your competitors are around, cool. But when you apply that outside of sport, that's where I had the real damage because I couldn't share, I couldn't talk. It was always seen as a weakness. If I even felt those emotions, those potentially negative or sad emotions, I saw that as a as a weakness rather than part of just the human state so hopefully that's a, an interesting story for you just around something that actually is positive in one environment but when it's not managed yeah had a really detrimental effect to, to me and my my mental health in general it's really interesting i think it's such uh a, like british view on how to be 
on that idea of like it's so impressive that he doesn't show the emotions and nothing seems to get through but actually sometimes I look at it I'm like I find it more impressive when I look at someone and they're training and you can tell they're absolutely knackered they've really pushed themselves they look exhausted they say they're exhausted but then they still turn up the next day and put in the same amount of work so it's like yes I understand why she's saying it and why it could be really impactful but actually I'm just as impressed and you know and just as almost scared of these people that push themselves you can see that they've really pushed themselves and then they're still turning up the next day and they're still grinding they're still putting the effort in so I think it's such like a yeah like a traditional view of like don't show the emotions when actually you know and again it depends how you're looking at how you frame it I think it's sort of both can be really impactful in different ways yeah I think it's like it's okay to express how you're feeling and what you're feeling but then you need to be able to recover from that and it's about what you do on the back of that yeah any environments you do it in right it needs to be a safe environment with safe people yeah yeah but if we don't have those, we haven't created those environments or those pockets. Cause it doesn't have to be everywhere, right? It can be pockets that you might the player might not want to do that in front of competition or whatever. But if as long as they can come to their coach or they have a mentor or whatever that they can do that, that's where they have the outlet to have that almost emotional recovery. Um, yeah, rather than applying it as blanket to everything. But as as we talked about, I was very all or nothing. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. And speaking about the recovery, obviously you yeah, we've spoken about the negative side of 2012, etc. But then we know through the intro that I very briefly gave that you went to the 2016 Olympics as well, which is another fantastic story that I think we wouldn't be doing you justice at all if we didn't speak about how well you then managed to recover and then get yourself back up to, you know, back up to speed and back up to competing on, on the world stage. So I took 18 months out from sport at this point. Um, and I went very public with the fact I, I'd been diagnosed with depression, bipolar tendencies, anxiety, and considered the threat to my own life at that point. So kind of um, almost under not not supervision the whole time, but very much on, on watch for six weeks, which is really sad considering the position I was in and what I had, the opportunities I had. I took to 18 months out because I, I just needed to escape the pressure and the expectation but the problem was in the 18 months is I felt better because I didn't have pressure or expectation no one was asking anything of me so I felt better but it stopped me from actually learning about myself and why I was struggling with my mental health in certain situations whatever that might be so I didn't learn anything I just ran away from my my problems and and after 18 months I decided to return to sport and I returned because it was the easiest thing to do it's who I was I didn't know I could do anything else so the easiest thing was to just run again I moved to Florida I lived out there for a year working with some of the best athletes I've ever lived world record holders and so on bankrupted myself to move out there and start my career again and as you said I went to a second Olympics in 2016 um after one year in Florida I'd moved back so I couldn't afford to live there I'd got injured I'd broken both my thumbs uh three ribs and strained a ligament in my knee in one of my races on my return year uh, and then ended up coaching myself and, and training on my own and I did that for four years went to a second Olympics I won a bronze medal at the world championships I won a European team championships I went to Commonwealth came fourth um and I did that all on my own but I was still destroying myself, still had the same habits and behaviors that I did before, slightly better, but but still really struggling. And the thing is, because I was doing it on my own, I was taking on even more pressure and expectation 
because I was writing my own program. I was being my own nutritionist. Many can afford things as well as not trusting people in the UK at that point. And yeah, then I retired at 28 years old. I retired as you go into your peak because I wasn't willing to sacrifice myself anymore for something I I no not no longer believed in, but I wasn't getting enough back from. So I was putting so much in. I was working two part-time jobs, doing keynote speaking to fund my career, training twice a day, and then I was still making like minimum wage. And then I wasn't winning everything, and it was hard. So not that winning was the only measure of success, but I just wasn't getting much back. So I retired at 28 and then stepped into the workplace wellbeing where I became the head of wellbeing at BBC um, and working with with workplaces. I, had, I was responsible for 10,000 people globally in 30 offices um, and writing the wellbeing strategy and supporting them with a lot of my lessons from sport and went into the coaching world. But that's a very quick kind of breeze through well obviously there's a lot of learnings within that time and and a lot of experiences both positive and negative uh, in that time yes i think you, know, you spoke really well around why at 28 you decided to take a step away from athletics even though as you say it's 28 to 32 is meant to be the prime years um i think before we start talking about the coaching side well perhaps I think it'd be rude of us not to to mention the global wellbeing lead at BBC. And if you could just ex explain to us what that role sort of entailed and, and what the job looked like. Yeah, so um, I'd done a lot of ambassador work for Mind and Young Minds. I've worked with the UK government in mental health reform. I've been a keynote speaker at hundreds of businesses sharing my kind of philosophy um, on well-being performance and how they were linked and BBC wanted something a bit different to what well-being had been which would, was just kind of like here's some services and and offerings and it's all just nice can you know listen to me and some of the work I've been doing and me saying how if you're thriving personally you're more likely to thrive professionally that if we focus on the whole person we're going to get a really good performer in in terms of their career or their hobby whatever that is so let's start connecting well-being and performance and they said oh would you come in audit what we're doing so see what we currently have and see where the gaps are and then write a strategy as to how we can start bringing in well-being bringing in certain cultural behavioral changes with our management team with our leadership that creates an environment where people feel safe but also are expected to perform basically a sports environment that isn't as brutal as sport uh so i started that i took the opportunity not because i i didn't really want the job but you, you don't say no to an opportunity like that when you don't actually have any i didn't have any qualifications from university or anything this was all just through experience so when something uh lands on your lap you do it right so yeah i did that i did that for a year i only did that for a year because i started it two weeks before covid um, and lockdown in the UK and I was the only person responsible for well-being at BBC there was 10,000 people plus and it was just a very difficult time um, and took you know I, I probably did about four years worth of work in that year and really put everything into it all or nothing but just because I wanted to serve other people do a great job and help people rather than uh, just my own success like it was previously so I did a year there before then moving into some of the provider side of things some coaching um, and I still do a lot of advisory work around workplace well-being both for services and provisions that, that businesses might buy but also for businesses and how they can support their people better and quite frankly all the lessons that I teach are just the lessons I I learned from sport and my own mental health 
as well as learning from other people, of course, but that I apply to my athletes and the reason why my athletes perform well. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Sorry, Tony. Um, The transferable skills element is something that we talk about a lot with our players and, and on this podcast, but I don't think we've ever seen an example of it to that scale, I suppose. I mean, being responsible for so many people and literally just using your experience that you had on sport to do that is just something that's really, really cool, I think. And it gives hope to athletes that are out there for for future careers as well. So just I'd pick up on that. Well, mindset is the most accessible thing, right? You don't have to have been, I'm six foot four and I have lungs like a horse, right? I I didn't choose that. I'm just really fortunate that that's who I am. So that helps that, that put me in a position to run. If you're not that, you might not be able to do what I did. But mindset, doesn't matter who you are, it's accessible. The lessons you're teaching your young athletes, the lessons I teach mine, the ones I was taught as an elite athlete, anyone can find those and can apply them. And quite frankly, performance is performance. Whether you, in my case, I'm trying to be the best dad I can be, the best partner I can be, the best uh, at my job, the best coach I can be. They're all the same thing. I'm just trying to be the best version of myself. I'm trying to do something well. It doesn't matter whether it's sport or not, but I can use exactly the same lessons because all of our mindset lessons are just, how do we get the most out of you? Mm -hmm. That's all it is. So that's why I, I almost obsess with mindset and how we think and why when I do my keynotes, a lot of it is actually just leaning into mindset and how we think because anyone can do it. And that's what I think is really cool about it. Because as I said, yeah, if, you, if, if I wasn't sick to four with lungs like I've got, I might not have been a 400 hurdler, but I can think like one. Yeah, it's brilliant. I, really like that. I also really like how you talk about the best dad you can be not the best dad ever or partner ever it's, it's about yourself not comparing yourself to others again which is really healthy and really i really like how you just naturally sort of drop that in there um another thing i want to speak about was you, you mentioned how like you threw everything into and because it, i guess part of it is because it's your personality you put everything into that one year you did at bbc but also you said it was really nice to help others and not yourself is that something that you discovered while doing that role and then is it also what sort of fueled you to become the coach that you are now as soon as i struggled with my own mental health that really changed so in the lead up when i was a young athlete and obviously doing very well and before that that real diagnosis of mental health struggles um i was aggressive i was confrontational i wasn't a very nice person because i thought that's how i had to be so I was like, put it on all the time. But it wasn't really me, which added to me struggling and the identity pieces. So then when I struggled, it almost made me human. Made me That was a big learning for me, was understanding I was just a human being who ran fast. Not that I was this special, I was a robot or I was this special. I wasn't. I was just a human being who can run, right? And then because I struggled so much, and I was at the point where I could have lost my life, which is, you know, is terrible but it's actually it it happens a lot within our our society and I was felt like I was in a position with my learnings with my experience and with my platform I'd have opportunities like this to share my story share some learnings hopefully create an environment where we do build out that human piece and build out the ways that are healthier to win that I can either stop people from struggling in the way that I did or more likely when people do struggle, I might be able to give them some tools and some help to be able to manage those moments better than I did. I didn't need to struggle as I did, but it's because I didn't have any 
experience, knowledge, support to get through those times. So from that kind of day onwards, I, I became very much more more fulfilled and very much more focused on how do I support others, which kind of led into the coaching really early because I started like naturally trying to coach people because I just wanted mm -hmm. to help them and support them. And then when I retired, I started working with, with elite athletes as well as grassroots athletes. I had grassroots athletes who had never run before that ended up becoming English schools champions and so on within a year. I had an athlete win the world relay championships for Italy, break the national record for Italy, run a personal best for the first time in six years. Yet she'd worked with some of the best, best coaches in the world in the best environments. And we did it on local track down in Kent in a spit and sawdust gym and with me coaching her right and she went to her third olympics and i'm no better a coach in terms of my knowledge or experience what i am really fortunate is i worked with two of the best coaches in in history that are deemed that i was able to learn from them and take a lot from them there's a lot they they do that i would never do because i don't agree with it but there's a lot they did that's like wow that's incredible let me let me learn and create my own philosophy around that but the reason i'm a good coach is because i care about my people Two things actually i care about my people and i make it so personalized individual how i work with them so i find out how's the family how are things outside of this how's education going how's, how's all of this and i do it i look after people not only because it's a nice thing to do and quite frankly you should but because it allows me to have difficult conversations it allows me to really set some high standards and non-negotiables and people follow it because they know I'm doing it because I care about them and their future. So when I then come and have a difficult conversation with my athlete, they know that I'm doing it with their, their kind of best intentions, right? Where do I want them to go? Rather than me just going straight in and saying, this isn't good enough and you're not up to standard, that's an attack. But if I've shown that I care about that person, that I see them as more than just an athlete or a number, and then I have this conversation of this doesn't seem to be working in the way we want it to, they know it's because I actually care where they go and where they end up. Uh, and then a part of that is the more you learn about them, the more you learn how they tick and the best way to make them faster. You know, the, the athlete that I coached that went to her third Olympics, won a world relays, I would never coach any other athlete in the world in the way I coached her. I wouldn't write the program I wrote for her for anyone else. I wouldn't communicate in the way I did with her than I would with anyone else. If you looked at everything on paper, you'd say, Jack, you're doing an awful job here. You have no idea. But she was a thoroughbred who had been treated like, like a, a plowing horse her whole career when she wasn't capable of doing lots of work and she also needed an arm round her shoulder but she had been in environments where it was just like work hard very standoffish very much like i'm the senior coach and you're the athlete so on and so forth i just made it very we were very equal i asked for her buy-in on everything and i realized that she was quality over quantity so we literally while she ran fast we carried on running as soon as it dropped off we left it didn't matter about science we just needed it to work for her she ended up running the best she's ever run um and i was really proud of that it was hard work and i think that's another piece is most coaches not always their fault they don't have the time especially within a team sport when you have so many people you don't have enough time to be able to to learn so much about your athletes in the way that i do as an individual sport with with my athletes and in track and field but i think the reason why people don't learn about their athletes or care about them is because one they either think you kind of lose this barrier of respect and like seniority and the alpha piece but also because it's really hard work 
takes a lot more time. It's a lot easier just to go, here's a training program, see you later. But a robot can do that. That's not a coach. That's where I've gone on a proper rant there because this is what I'm really passionate about. <laughs> um, but that's why I'm a, I'm a good coach is because I try and learn about my people and then I try and adapt everything to suit that individual. That's brilliant. I think we, me and Brad definitely appreciate the rant and we completely understand and, and get it. Um, it's probably a simplest way of putting it. Uh, I know for myself, growing up, trying to make it absolutely nowhere near sustainable, but trying to make it as an athlete, that, you know, I wish that I'd had that. And that's also part of the reason why I got into my role as well, is that understanding the individual needs over that. Just like you said, like how many great coaches I've seen that just have a program that they stick to and they just churn it out again and again and again. And, and yes, you're gonna, they're going to have some successes, of course, and they are really good at their job. But actually, like you said, it's shaping it to the individual and, and being that um, transformational coach is just, you know, it takes it up to a whole nother level. Uh, I think it's interesting to see now that, you know, all academies and teams are having to take on board player care staff in the football world because they're understanding the importance of it and understanding the idea of, of having that, you know, that more holistic support available to players. So, yeah, really brilliant and really appreciate the rant. Well, I think, unless you know, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Jack or, or Brad, but I think we've sort of come towards the end of, of this episode. I think it's been one, one of my favourite episodes for sure. Um, I knew it would be a good one. It's been months in the making and it, it definitely lived up to expectations and what a great episode to launch season three, which is so exciting. And, and hopefully the, the rest of our guests that we've got lined up will be just as insightful and, and offer just as valuable advice as you have um so thank you very much for joining us today jack and is there any final words you'd like to share before signing off i think probably that last point right if you for a coach we'll do it in two ways for a coach start caring beyond performance and that's where you really start to unlock some really special moments and as an athlete i think it's that piece of you are a human being and start understanding there's a journey along the way that might be forwards, it might be sideways, it might be backwards at times. But that's okay because that's kind of how life works and sport is just an extension of life. So hopefully for coaches, athletes, there'll be lots within there that, that can help. And if there's not, then I'm sorry, I tried my best. <laughs> no, thank you. There's definitely a lot to take away from this episode. That's been great. I think that might possibly be the title for the, for the episode is You Are a Human Being. I see Brad's got his highlighter out there, so he might be in a similar wavelength to me. Um, but yeah, and just as well, the final, final part is is where can our guests reach you? How can they contact you? Uh, so the only social media I'm on is LinkedIn because I deleted everything when I retired to, to have a bit more focus on myself and not do that comparison piece. Um, so yeah, I'm just on LinkedIn um you'll find me on there if there's any questions around coaching or my own journey or how i can support or any advice then yeah drop me a message uh, and i'm always quite responsive on there thank you very much brad anything from yourself no i just that was an amazing episode absolutely loved it uh the journey from athlete into coach and the way that you've provided insight and tips for for both of those is amazing and all very connected to to well-being and psychology throughout as well and i'm sure young players in a football academy setting can definitely take plenty from that so great first episode i hope it's received well i'm looking forward to the rest 
Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much, Jack. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in again. And yeah, hope everyone's looking forward to season three as much as we are. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers, Jack.